This is an ABC podcast. On Science Friction, I am Natasha Mitchell. Welcome. You are about to meet two gutsy, multi-award winning film directors with stories that connect and contrast two incredible, confronting, crucial films where artificial intelligence is being used in the service of good, bad and possibly just plain rotten. Мы начали получать первые сообщения из Чечни о том, что в Чечне происходит массовое задержание геев. David France, director of the documentary Welcome to Chechnya, went underground to document the current persecution, imprisonment, torture, murder of LGBTIQ people in Chechnya and the courageous ongoing rescue mission to get them out to safety. This kid got stopped as a result of facial recognition misidentification and then used that as justification to search you. This is an innocent child. Racism is becoming mechanised. Shalini Kantaya, director of Coded Bias, documents the rise of the so-called Algorithmic Justice League. Now, they're a fledgling movement with a mission to rescue us from the insidious creep of biased computer algorithms into pretty much every aspect of our lives. Their films feature at this year's Melbourne International Film Festival and they join me from a balmy summer in New York City. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. The injustices in these films are real and raw and happening in the world right now. And there's this sharp and, and, and shocking sense of urgency in both of these films. For both of you, why are these films that you were compelled to make now? What drove you to these stories? David? Well, this was a story about a, an ongoing genocidal program in the southern Russian Republic of Chechnya, a conflict which we uh, were all informed about in a series of articles published in a newspaper in Russia. Back in 2017, it produced headlines around the globe. It was a horrifying revelation of uh, a campaign to round up and eliminate all LGBTQ people living in the, the Chechen Republic. It generated horror and government leaders around the world uh, were outraged by it and demanded justice. But the story immediately fell from headlines. And what I discovered some months later was that it, the, the crimes themselves had not stopped. And in fact, that ordinary Russians were responding to this in really heroic ways. I spent 18 months embedded in this underground network, this underground railroad of people who were actually physically rescuing individuals from Chechnya, hiding them, tending to their physical wounds and their psychological wounds, and trying to get them out of Chechnya and to relative safety in other parts of the world. Yeah, the access that you got was incredible. The trust engendered is incredible. Uh, Shalini, what about you? Coded bias is this absolutely riveting, vital interrogation of the way in which machine learning algorithms are effectively shaping our lives in the most potent and yet most secret ways. Why were you compelled to make this film? Well, I think all of my work deals with how disruptive technology makes the world less or more fair. And when I stumbled 
upon the work of Joy Bolamwini and Kathy O'Neill, the author of Weapons of Math Destruction, I sort of stumbled down the rabbit hole of the dark side of big tech and came to realize quite shockingly that you know, these computer systems that we give them our implicit trust to and entrust with such decisions like who gets hired, who gets health care, how long a prison sentence someone may serve, have not been often vetted for accuracy or for racial or gender bias. And that comes across in the making of this film where you know, Joy Bolamwini is just trying to make something like a Snapchat filter work, right? Um, And put a mask on her face and stumbles upon the fact that commercially available facial recognition doesn't see dark faces or women accurately. She's this remarkable MIT computer scientist and poet and performer and There she is, playing around with facial recognition, artificial intelligence technology, and in order for her black female face to be recognised as a face, she has to put on a white mask. I mean, that's an astounding discovery, isn't it? It is, and I think what is kind of alarming is facial recognition is often the thing people want to talk about because we can see it and there's something so visceral about this type of invasive surveillance. But there are all these other ways in which we uh, interact with algorithms in ways where discrimination may be opaque to us and may actually um, roll back um, civil rights. And just in the way that David embedded himself with a community of activists, so do you. Joy is the founder of the Algorithmic Justice League and you spend time with Brooklyn housing tenants, teachers in classrooms, a woman on probation, kids on the streets of London. All of these people, you reveal, are being targeted in some way by unfair AI. Give us a glimpse of how our own data is being weaponized against us in these intimate ways. Well, I think when I started this film, I thought it was about some notion of privacy, which I feel a little bit disconnected from. And what I realized is that it's really about invasive surveillance the kind of stuff that makes the East German Stasi look like they had a light touch. Yeah. From what you see in your social media feed or your Google search, what ads you might get marketed to. You know, sometimes it's the invisible gatekeeper and whether you uh, get a job or into a college, oftentimes it decides opportunity is the first sort of gatekeeper keeper of opportunity or housing. Um, There's so many ways in which these automated systems are being deployed. And the danger is of what happened when Amazon quite innocently tried to use a hiring algorithm and thought it would be less biased. And because it was running off of past data, sort of discriminates against all women applying. Anyone who had a woman's college or sport was eliminated. The AI weeded, was eliminated. Extraordinary. And so it was just, 
the perfect example of how AI can replicate the inequalities of the past. David France, the encoded bias, it's about the corporation, the corporate world's kind of penetration into our private lives. In, in your film, Welcome to Chechnya, the penetration of the state into people's private lives is, is at its most frightening. So take us inside the shelter you got extraordinary access to and help us meet some of the people that you met. Who, who is it sheltering and what sort of a situation have they confronted? The Safe House Network uh, that has now been stood up across the globe to try and save people from Chechnya is a teeming environment of people who have suffered some of the most unspeakable torture and repression. Certainly, they have encountered a kind of a hatred and um, governmental assault like I've never thought even possible since you know since the end of the Hitler regime. Um, these are people who came from a part of the world that is very isolated, as impenetrable as North Korea. Let's give people a sense of, of Chechnya itself. I mean, it's a closed Muslim state in the Russian Federation headed by Putin-backed strongman Ramzan Kadyrov. Every aspect of life is dictated from the palaces of the Kadyrovs. They have undertaken a series of campaigns against various and peculiarly defined enemies of the state. Uh, the LGBT community is only the newest of the targets of this kind of ire and criminality. But w once the dictate comes down from the Kadyrovs, it's the responsibility of every member of the Chechen body to begin to identify and reveal LGBTQ people among them and to bring them to justice. So what began in 2017 as a campaign of the government doing this work got even more widespread where people began feeding the government any information that they might be able to ferret out. There was a suspicion that infected the community itself and has made it entirely impossible for LGBT people there. And, and so what we see is people by the hundreds and thousands, perhaps more, who are in hiding there trying to find ways out of the region. Yes, and the the crackdown has been has been brutal and there's talk of of secret prisons where particularly gay men are sent, rounded up and sent. People are not safe in their own families. What did you find out from uh, the young men that you spoke to about what happens in those secret prisons? It was it's, it's, it's as horrible as one can imagine. The 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 purpose of the rounding people up and and imprisoning them is in order to um, extract from them any information they might have about other gay folks in the area. So the torture is meant for them to to turn in the people that they know, and then they are um, uh, targeted for death after that. So it's. It is literally a liquidation campaign. Their safety is not secured, even in the West, even uh, in Paris, um, even in Canada, because of the vast uh, diaspora of Chechens who are under the same instructions as those who are living in Chechnya and have been conscripted in the same campaign. And, and that made gaining their trust very difficult because they 
I wanted to make a film that revealed what was happening to them and they wanted to remain unrevealed. Um, and that's what caused me to turn to AI as a solution to their problem, to allow them to be able to tell their own stories safely. And so here is the good side of AI. So tell us how you used AI in this film, Welcome to Chechnya, to mask the identity of people like the incredibly courageous 30-year-old Grisha, who, who, I mean, his boyfriend, his family, he, they all have to flee Russia to stay safe. Absolutely. And, and uh, you know, when I first started talking to them, I said, I'm going to find a way to disguise you. But what I really want to be able to do is to film your faces and film your lives and film your interactions in the most unscripted way to, to not have to relegate you to the chair in the darkness behind a, a hood um, in the shadows. And um, I wanted to be able to feel their journey both the journey away from the horrors of Chechnya and, uh, and the, the way that they would cope with their traumas from that experience, but also this journey um, into a, a kind of a freedom of the heart, a lightness that was so empowering to watch. And so um, the people who agreed to let me film them took me at my word that I would find some way to do this. And when I brought my footage back to New York, I, I realized that I had no clue about what to do. <laughs> and, uh, looked to looked to the um, examples that others had used in documentary films, and I found them unsatisfying in a way. You know, there was the, um, the pixelation, of course, and the blurring, and that really um, subtracted from the humanity of the people and the, the human power of their journeys. Uh, and it wasn't until I began to immerse myself in the world of VFX and by extension into AI that I realized that that technology is not only dangerous, that it has a moral duality and that what we might be able to do, and I found a team that would help me find a way to do this, is to harness AI in a way that doesn't uh, falsify reality, but empowers reality and empowers truth. And we did that by working to find a way to allow us to shield them behind other people's faces. So essentially you're using, I think, a deep learning computer process and you take face doubles, so people who have volunteered their real faces, and you stitch them digitally onto the faces of your subjects in Russia and Chechnya. And those other people, there are 24 people in the film and 24 face doubles. The face doubles did this as a kind of an act of activism. They lent their faces as shields, knowing that there might be some risk to them personally to do this, to take away the identifiable aspects of the people whose stories I wanted to tell, but not taking away anything of their humanity. In fact, empowering their humanity, giving them back their, their ability to, to share their own story and to do it safely. Just briefly, what's the AI component of what you're doing? Well, the, so in AI, what we've done is we've, um, we've created a data set using um, these 24 people. I, we brought them into a blue screen environment and ingested their faces under similar lighting circumstances from the film. And the film was shot, of course, under sometimes in darkness, sometimes very grainy. It's shot on cell phones and hidden cameras and GoPros and 
and a lot of it because it's really about people running. A lot of it is shot in very un, with very jerky cameras, and so we recreated that lighting situation for each of the people, so that AI, the deep machine learning, would be able to find similar lighting situations in the data set, and then the machine learning program and software mapped the faces of the face doubles uh, pixel by pixel over the face of the people in the, that I shot in the film. It created such a hybrid, although a very human looking and acting in, in a way, neither person is recognizable as a result of this and, and melded them together into this new face and, um, and created what she, something that shielded, kind of both parties to this process. It doesn't impact at all what the people who I was filming were saying or doing, or every eye blink is their own. Every smile, every quiver of terror is theirs. Wow. Mm. So they're really, they're driving somebody else's face. It transplants someone else's skin over their face. You thank at the end of your film, uh, the Dartmouth College Empathy Lab, and I wonder how you involved them in testing whether your face doubles, your fake faces in a sense, fake but real, this is what makes this interesting and we'll come back to that later, were genuine enough. What I worried about was that we risked tumbling into the uncanny valley. If you look at a robot that's just a box, you have a certain response to it. When they put little moving arms and spinning heads on that box, you feel warmer to it. And the closer that that robot be- gets to being human, the warmer you feel about it until it gets almost there, but not quite there. And then it becomes creepy. And that's the valley that you drop into, that creepiness, until you, if you cross over the valley once the robot becomes in, indiscernible from an ordinary human being. And I was worried that we had gotten too close but not close enough with the face doubling. But what we discovered is that the, the full face double scored identical to the uncovered face. Uh, in fact, it's very unusual, and um, I think there were 109 people in the subjects in the study uh, to produce this data set, that the face double face scored slightly higher on empathy <laughs> tests than the original face did. And the, the professor Wheatley suspects that maybe people thought that the, the shielding face was a little more cute than the one that was being covered. So oh. maybe it, it might be that we, that we, um, that we inadvertently discovered a, a, a test on cuteness. Absolutely fascinating. Joining me on Science Friction this week, uh, two directors, Shalini Kantaya, she's the director of a new documentary, Coded Bias, and David France, who's the director of Welcome to Chechnya, both screening at the Melbourne International Film Festival this year. Shalini, Coded Bias, I wonder how you're listening to David's use of AI for good when you embedded yourself in activist communities like Big Brother Watch UK who were unearthing and interrogating how law enforcement authorities are already using AI, facial AI, to discriminate. I love technology. Don't get me wrong. I feel like most of the women, the data scientists and 
mathematicians in my film love love technology also. I think it's just a matter of what Kathy O'Neill talks about, which is power, which is traditionally the access to these kinds of technologies is all on one side. So you have this very powerful tool of invasive surveillance, which is often used to do the opposite of what David did so innovatively in his film. And I, I, I do think AI can be used for good. I do think these technologies um, can be used to protect democratic values. I think coded bias just seeks to look at what could happen to the most vulnerable among us if we don't have some rules in place about these very powerful tools that will impact really how civil rights um, goes goes down in the 21st century. Yes, and before we come to the ways in which technology like AI could be an enabler of justice rather than simply a tool for prejudice and control and, and kind of corporatization of our own data... Take us onto the streets of London. You you travel out onto the streets with a group called Big Brother Watch UK who are interrogating the way in which facial recognition technology is being used already by law enforcement authorities. What's happening? One of the most alarming moments is seeing this 14-year-old black child in school uniform be stopped by five plainclothes police officers and um, detained and fingerprinted without ever being asked for his ID because he was wrongly identified by facial recognition. And that is um, upwards of 85% of the time. The same thing happened here in the U.S. where a man in Detroit was held for 30 hours in jail without ever being asked for his ID because he was wrongly identified by facial recognition. And so you can see um, this really stark use of this technology. And it it can happen in, in softer ways that interact with our civil rights. Like if you go to protest and a police officer takes your picture and can pull you up in a database and pull up your social media profile, do we still then have the same right to assemble um, if we don't have that anonymity? Um, And so we really have to look at what part of our humanity we're losing in this race to efficiency. And it really is a wild, wild west in in America, but also elsewhere in the world. I mean, there are laws governing how biological data like DNA, um, our fingerprint data is used, collected, stored, collated. But what you reveal is that corporate use of our data, of our faces, of what we put on social media, seems to be a black box and an unregulated black box. Absolutely. It's something we should all be concerned about is the kind of unparalleled power that big tech now has in our society and how we start to balance that power with citizens. And I think it's hopeful that we saw 
you know, just over the summer as a result of these protests also, and people relating that facial rec- banning facial recognition is in keeping with protecting Black life. You saw IBM say that they would stop selling facial recognition, Microsoft saying they would stop selling it to police, and Amazon saying they would press a one-year pause. And I think that that's really hopeful and shows that we kind of have this moonshot moment to tell these companies that we really want um, democratic values protected in in these technologies. Yeah, what you hope is that this is not just a temporary response by those companies in response to the heat of the Black Lives Matter protests. Well, I think it will be because what I saw was that that sort of sea change was a result of um, sort of the the brave and badass women in my film um, who had so much integrity in their scientific research that they were not afraid to put their reputations on the line. They are totally Um, brave and badass. Exactly. I think so too. And we owe them a debt of gratitude. And I think it's, it's the combination of when scientists are able to speak regardless of corporate interest and when engaged citizens um, act on that science. Uh, when we know these algorithms are racially biased, we cannot let our police departments and our law enforcement use them. And I think we need legislation. And I'm a believer that when we put a framework in place, businesses will continue to innovate and we will have um, new approaches to this technology. I think part of what I hope Coded Bias does is actually question the solutionism of this like great white knight of technology always racing in to save us all, like we're seeing with COVID-19 and Apple and Google saying, we're going to save you from COVID-19. We just need to track and know everywhere you've been, you know, everyone you've like been around and been with. And I don't think that's healthy in a democracy to trust corporations with that kind of data. And when you look at it, who is most impacted by COVID-19? It's communities of color, and it's older people, none of whom may have these high-tech tracking devices. And so I guess what I hope is that people will sometimes even question an algorithmic, does this actually call for an algorithmic solution, or does it actually need a human one? Yeah. David France, there's a flip side to the positive aspects of you using facial AI technology to mask the identity of the subjects in your your film, Welcome to Chechnya. Because you're an investigative journalist, you know how potent truth and fakery can be in shifting public agendas. So this is an example of a technology that could be used for good or bad. You know, if the internet becomes infiltrated with deep fake videos and identities or they're used in propaganda campaigns on social media to spread misinformation, undermine candidates in your forthcoming American election, for example, where does that leave the truth? And I wonder how you feel about that as a seasoned investigative journalist who's spent your life dedicated to exposing truths. It's a, tr- it's a tricky tension, isn't it? This uh, the sort of good and evil of, uh, or the good and bad of technology and who gets to pull the strings 
It, that's exactly true. And 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 what are the motives of those people? And um, you know, I guess what 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 Welcome to Chechnya tries to point out, maybe for the first time, is that with the proper intent, the technology can be used uh, to free people, to free people who otherwise wouldn't um, have that kind of freedom, otherwise would be relegated to the to the shadows for the rest of their lives. And it's the same technology. It's just used, you know, not in a way that's going to produce profit for anybody, but it's used to the benefit of social justice. It's possible. There's just not a big marketplace for it. And how do you ensure the privacy of your subjects? I mean, you did capture them on film. So somewhere that footage exists and could be used for nefarious purposes by by the Russian or, or Chechen state? It certainly could be, and certainly that was one of the security issues that I, I had to grapple with, even from the very beginning. So we captured it and immediately transferred it to encrypted drives that were encrypted to a degree that would make them in, impossible to break into. We edited the film in an air-gapped edit suite, meaning none of our computers had ever touched the internet because we knew we had state actors who were interested in this information. And we did all of our AI work in, uh, with a company that we helped establish uh, in an undisclosed location with, that was windowless and, uh, and hidden. Huge. And uh, we promised everybody in the film that we would bring them our solutions to this disguise problem for their security review and approval and that we would destroy all the undisguised footage afterward. Well, the stories that you tell in this film are absolutely heartbreaking and it's it's a frightening reality that people in Chechnya and Russia are, are living right now. Families trying to get out. It's thanks to AI that I was able to show it to you. We are in an extraordinary moment in history. We are living through a global pandemic, social, economic systems are in a state of absolute disarray. And I wonder, as you look to the past of how we've used technology to shape our society, how you look to the future for what we might do differently. Charlene. I actually feel incredibly hopeful. Um, I think we have a moonshot moment and that has a lot to do um, with the people in the streets fighting for the inherent value of Black life and for um, equality for all of us. And I think because of them, we have this moment um, to make strides towards social change that we have not before. But I think what I've realized is that you know, none of us can be asleep at the wheel. No. We all have to be participating in this moment. Martin Luther King says the arc of history bends towards justice, but it's actually us that has to do the bending. And so I feel like this moment is, is calling on all of us to say, what can we do a little more towards making sure that everyone has um, civil rights and, and equality? And, and Shalini, David was, as he described, dedicated to a radical transparency of 
negotiating how he used AI to disguise the faces of his subjects. Corporations are not required to demonstrate radical transparency, and that's an issue, isn't it? Absolutely. I think what David taught us is that he was thinking about the unintended consequences and unintended harms that his work might cause Mm. and really thought through all of those scenarios uh, to come up with a human-centered approach to use of this technology. And that's something that that companies are not um, doing and that we have to demand that they do. David, you've spent a lifetime documenting how prejudice manifests. You've documented the AIDS crisis in in the deepest of detail in in all of your work from the very early years of of HIV AIDS. And I wonder Mm. how you look ahead because we are here living in a pandemic rife with prejudice. That's absolutely true. And in fact, the pandemic made that undeniable. It has shown us the many ways that prejudice and bias and inequality has already been part of the fabric of everyday life and, um, and, and how it's impacted so much of everything. And I, and I also felt that the, certainly at the, the dawn of the movement, movement for Black Lives, a great sense of promise that once this pandemic descended on us, it was not easy for any of us to see a future. We only saw a really threatening present. And, uh, and I think the, the movement that has taken to the streets, first in the U.S. And, and now in so many other places, has shown us a new vision for a future and shown us a, um, that it might be possible to do a reset, like a major cultural, um, political, philosophical reset on life on human existence. And I, f- I found that very promising. More recently, I found the consolidating of power by corporate interests, pharmaceutical interests, certainly, we're seeing that in a massive way, really rising up as a wall against that kind of progress, against that reset. So I'm, I'm very concerned about that. But as far as technology goes, I think technology is what's going to get us out of this problem. And the technological innovation of the past five months um, in biotech and in big pharma has been remarkable. The one real promise, I think, for how we're going to get to the next place. And it can be used for good uh, and better be used for good. Um, Unfortunately, we are not seeing the kind of bulwark that we need for representatives from civil society to be present at that table. I'm feeling like our voices have not yet been joined with this massive, massive undertaking um, that we're watching and hoping for that might produce some sort of you know, biological solution that will allow us to go back to ordinary life. Well, as, as HIV activism demonstrated so potently, it took activists to get the science mm-hmm. and the technology to the people the medicine to the people, the drugs to the people. And people are organising around it. They're trying to find lessons from, for example, the HIV-AIDS movement that was so powerful and so effective in the 80s and 90s that they might be able to learn from and innovate from and uh, build on to be a voice at the table today. And so I think we've got this kind of technological machinery moving forward, as Shalini describes, that's 
unmediated by by the voices of ordinary people to try and make sure that it's human centric, as she said, and is doing the right thing for the right reasons. David France and Shalini Kantaya, congratulations on what are confronting, crucial, compassionate documentaries. They are incredible, and I hope they force change in the world. Thank you so much for joining us on the ABC. Thank you, Natasha. And it's so good to be here with you, Shalini. Thanks so much. Um, and the honour was mine to you both. Shalini Kantaya is director of Coded Bias. Director David Francis' film is Welcome to Chechnya, both part of this year's Melbourne International Film Festival offer. I'm Natasha Mitchell. Thank you to co-producer Jane Lee. Talk to me on Twitter at Natasha Mitchell. And if you like the show, leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts or tell your friends from Melbourne Life. Here in pandemic lockdown stage number four, you take care. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.